Hello, everyone, and welcome back to what I was going to call my dispatch interview series, but this is actually not a continuation of my dispatch interview series. This is actually the first in a new series, and I'm here today with uh, photographer, visual artist, Elena Dorfman. Elena, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Dan. That was kind of fake. We've been, she's been around for a while. We've been talking nonstop, <laughs> but I had to do that for the interview to make it sound, sound official. But uh, So we're going to cover a, a lot of different things here. I want to talk a little bit about your background and then a little description of your work, some of the kinds of ways that you work, a little description of who you are, what you're up to, what you've done, and then we're going to get to the questions. And then I'm going to ask you a lot about some of the things that I mentioned here in the front because I'm intrigued. And oddly enough, we've known each other for quite some time, and there's, there's some basic componentry of your life and career that I, I don't know. How is that possible? I don't know how it's possible. We had so many other things to talk about. Yes. Um, and we, we are going to get to a couple of things at the, at the, towards the end of this, uh, the contribution to AG23, and also uh, Albania, which is interesting because we now have a little connection via Albania of sorts, which I will we'll, we'll go into in detail. But you come from the Boston area. I do. Is it in Marblehead? Marblehead, exactly. Yeah. Marblehead. Okay. Yes, we've had, we've had much enjoyment over the past few days talking about uh, the Boston culture and how unique it is. You went to Sarah Lawrence College. Yep. And I don't know much about Sarah Lawrence College. I, I chose my school based on the quality of the football team, mm. University mm-hmm. of Texas. Yes. So um, what, was, what was Sarah Lawrence? How was that? Well, you chose football. I recall so vividly driving up into the driveway of Sarah Lawrence and seeing a man, a guy with a shaved head wearing a dress. And I thought, this is my place. Yeah. That's how I got to Sarah Lawrence. Okay. That's all it takes. Uh, we'll, we'll touch back on that in a minute. Your work uh, covers a lot of different things, and this is something we're going to talk about in a minute, a minute about career evolution. But your work covers marginalized communities and neglected landscapes and kind of dances between tensions existing between things like fantasy and reality and the artificial and the natural in a very unique way. Your, your photography uh, style and content is pretty unique. I don't really know anyone else who's making work like you make, which we'll get obviously more in detail to. You're a photographer and a filmmaker, and you also work with tapestry, which is very interesting. I've seen a few of those over the past uh, year or so. And you're in private, private collections, public collections. You've got gallery representation. You've got at least five monographs and, and series out from Val- Valbona Sublime, L.A. River, Empire Falling, The Pleasure Park, Fandomania, Characters and Cosplay, and Still Lovers, which is the pro- project that I really was the first project of yours that I really saw in depth, and it's fantastic. Uh, and when I'm, we're going to talk a lot more about that. And, okay, let's just, uh, we'll break into the questions here, which is, uh, the first one is about, I would, when I was doing a little bit of research on you, I realized that I would have probably called you a visual artist as opposed to a straight photographer. Would you agree with that? I would call myself a visual artist now, but I definitely began as a straight photographer. In fact, really a straight, straight photographer. I was a documentary photographer when I started, and it's evolved. You know, I've, I'm, I'm considered a mid-career artist now, so I've had six, six, seven, eight series that have been conceived of and executed, and so that's taken some time. So my work has evolved over the last two decades. But I certainly started out as a, I would say, even as a photojournalist, for sure. And it's, it's the work has evolved significantly since then. So when you came out of Sarah Lawrence and you were a photographer, what did you envision your career would be? What did it look like to you at that point? I went into newspapers right away. So I started, actually, that's not true. So taking a step back, I was a really a, a child of divorce. And so my father was a big film and photography uh, buff. He sort of knew a lot about it, um, took a lot of pictures, made films. He was really interested. And so needing something to do with me as a divorced parent, he gave me a camera. Ah. And that's what we would do. We would go all over the Boston area photographing, and he gave me an old Roloflex. And so I started out shooting you know, two and a quarter with him. He built me a dark room. So from a very young age, that's what I did, and that was our connection. And I really never thought I would do anything else, and I actually have never done anything else except carried a camera for pleasure and for my, for my living. How old were you when he gave you the camera? Uh, probably 10. And do you remember some of the pictures that you made during that time? Oh, they were just, you know, <laughs> we would go his shoes or my sister or my bedroom or, you know, 
just whatever was in my immediate surroundings, probably. Although we, we, we traveled and, you know, I would always take the camera. So, and, and he taught me the darkroom really early. That's fantastic. Yeah. So that was, it was really never a question of what else I would do. And so after Sarah Lawrence, um, I, a, a quick blip in between when I was a young adult, actually still in high school, I was diagnosed with cancer. So I went through a couple of years of pretty serious cancer treatment. Okay. And what was lacking at the time was anybody telling the story of what young adults going through cancer was like. So when I got to Sarah Lawrence, it's a very open curriculum, and I asked my photography professor at the time, could I do a project on my own experiences with cancer but focus on other young adults and their families in order to give people an idea of what people, you know, what, what young adults go through. Yeah. And so I started it at Sarah Lawrence. Uh, it was called The C Word. Yep. Uh, excuse me. <clears throat> and I uh, finished it when I was about 26. I, I actually moved across the country in the middle of it. So I finished, I started in Boston uh, did some of it in New York, and then moved to California. And I actually never left California. So I, I finished the book when I was 25 or 26, and the book did, you know, really well. It, it, people, hospitals, um, doctors, clinicians, people wanted to know what a 17, 18, 16, 17, 18-year-old with cancer, what they needed. And oh, so, I'm sure. I mean, a, a regular 16, 17, 18-year-old without cancer is a difficult uh, problem to solve. It's an, you know, we're all enigmas at that age. And so I'm sure for them, it was an unbelievable resource to have somebody catalog all of that for them. Yeah, I followed five teenagers, so five kids and their families from Boston to San Francisco and kind of points in between and, and spent a lot of time with them in real true documentary fashion. I mean, I was with them for some of them a couple of years going through everything they went through, living with their families, living with them in the hospital room. I was kind of reliving my own experience, but through them. And the book did, you know, I, it did really well. I went on the lecture circuit. I, it, many books were, you know, second and third publications and printings. It, it was And that was surprising. your first time putting a book together? Yes, and that was my first time. Exactly. And, and how did that come about? Was that something that you pursued or did they come to you? Because um, that in itself is a relatively monumental undertaking to do that. And then you have now have the responsibility that you're photographing these other families and this is going into print. And once it goes into print, it's out there forever. Right. So how, if I recall correctly, how it happened was I had, the book was finished. It took about five years. Okay. And I had five or six kids and um, the sign off from everybody because we had all grown very close. Um, and I was approached, I think, by a very small publisher in Oregon called New Sage Press. And New Sage had a, a publicity person who reached out all over the country. Wow. And she reached out to a man who is, he and his family are extremely well known in the music industry. And they had recently lost their daughter who was about my age. And they reached out to me and said, we, we want to know you and we would like to help you get the word out. So they got me a um, literary agent. So okay. I, I spoke all over the country about it. And they helped promote the book. And how old were you when you were doing this? 26 or 7. Wow. That's quite a first project. Yeah, it yeah. was really successful. And it was mostly important to me because I felt like I had given back to a community that was really important to me. And I had also been able to work out some of my own issues and thoughts and feelings about, you know, having just survived a pretty, um, d pretty difficult cancer treatment. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, quite a way to enter into the photography world. And was that book that was prior to Sarah Lawrence or just after? That was just after. I started it my last year of Sarah Lawrence, and then I moved to California, moved to California. finished it there, and then the Chronicle uh, did a big piece on the book, on me, and then they said, would you like to shoot for us? And that was actually my, th those were my first assignments for the San Francisco Chronicle because um, you know how things go. The director of photography, uh, Scott Summerdorf at the time, had also lost his sister at a young age to leukemia. Mm. And he said, I really like what you've done. I like your work. Would you like to do a couple of assignments? And so that's when I started really actually being paid to take pictures for them. That was your first foothold was Chronicle San Francisco yes. after moving across. Yes. That's a pretty good place to land as yeah, well. Yeah, it was it, great. What, what time frame is this? What year? Oh, about 1990. 
because 90 was... 92, 92, 93, sorry. 92, 93 was prior to the digital revolution. Yes. And prior to the digital revolution was a very different lifestyle as a photographer. Yes, it was. I I would say that those were the final years before both the positive and sort of negative uh, turnover of the industry began to change immediately. And so here you get a degree from Sarah Lawrence, you do your, the cancer project in the book, and you're now working at the Chronicle, and you're doing reportage. You're basically doing newspaper yes. assignments, yes. which are pretty strict in terms of how you have to, you know, ethically when you're making pictures like that. It's not like you're doing it every day as you're shooting a feature project. You're shooting right. very, very specific assignments. Yeah. And so you're still at the point where you are... Uh, doing what you thought you would do as a photographer in the sense that you're a straight photographer in your documentary. Absolutely. But you're also, are you starting to do projects on the side outside of the, because it's almost like you, you tasted the promised land by doing a long-term project that was self, self-started and you got it public. I mean, it was sort of from a terrible scenario, it was the best possible s- scenario in some twisted way. Yep. And so now you have a newspaper job, but are you starting to do further projects on the side? Yes. So I was always pretty ambitious. So I started to do assignments for them. And and some of the, they grew in scope. So, I mean, I remember my first big assignment for them was shooting Gloria Steinem in New York. So I got on a plane and went to Gloria Steinem's house. And, you know, she was like <laughs> a hero of mine. So she still is. So... I, we photographed her in her bed and, you know, I hung out in her, her, her east side uh, townhouse with her and it was fantastic. So, and then I also recall that I asked if I could do a project for them. This was, I remember it was probably in 94. Again, we're going to circle back to Albania, which is where my maternal family is from. It was a country that was closed for 50 years. So from 1945 to 19. 91, the country was totally sealed off, similarly to North Korea today, and my family was it was there. Mm-hmm. I had never met them because we couldn't get in, so I asked the Chronicle, could I do a project? Because in 91, as we know, the wall fell and former East Bloc countries were liberated, and I asked if we could, if I could do a project where I go into the North with some of the food distribution um, NGOs who were going up and so we could distribute the food and I could go into the north and see what the country was like so the Chronicle sent me to do that which in the day you know looking back I don't know who would do that today except for maybe National Geographic but I had carte blanche to go back and and do it I also because I had a connection to Albania I remember one of Rick Smolin's books A Day in the Life I also was sent to Albania and speaking of the analog versus the digital, I actually think, now I'm giving my age away, that I might have even processed film in a toilet. <laughs> in Albania? Yes. And so you went to Albania for the Chronicle first, and then you went for Day in the Life? Yeah. I th- you were I, on the Day in the Life project? Yes. And which which book was that? I don't remember now. Those books were unbelievable. Yes. I mean, that, I was coming up as a photographer at the same time, yes. and I wanted more than anything else to get on one of those projects, yes. which, yeah. <laughs> which I never yeah. did. Yeah. But I would scour not only the images in the book, but I would scour the pictures in the back where they had little tiny like thumbnails of each photographer. Yes. And, you know, uh, photographers with their film laid out on the on the hotel floor yeah. of well, like wherever yeah, they were. And I was like, was. that is the life yeah. that I want. Smolin is a genius, man. He yeah. deserves a lot of credit for he what was he early on. He was. And he's always out in front. Yes. So I didn't uh, I didn't know that was the first time. I thought your first trip to Albania was a was a, a personal mission. It was sorry. Over. The first trip was absolutely personal. I'm skipping 1993, which was my very first year taking my best friend and I got there on a plane go. and yeah. It tra- doesn't matter. I just in my head. Yes, it was yes. like 93, 94, 95. That was the trajectory of the early years shooting there. First wow. for me to yep. get in, get to get to know the country. It had just opened again after 50 years of total isolation. Yeah. Nobody knew anything about it, but yet I had family there and I had already been. And so that was uh, that was very positive for me to be able to um, parlay that into assignment work. Sure. Because yeah. people were eager to know what the country looked like, what the people looked like, what was happening, what the transition was. And I said, I can do this. I actually think I went with Anthony Hernandez. He and I went to Albania together for, okay. for a day in the life. But the Chronicle, I went, uh, yeah, I went and just shot all in the north. And it was quite a trip, epic trip. But those were the early, early 90s, early to mid and so, and so you go to, and did that, did the project in Albania start with that work or was there a gap between you 
saying, I think I want to go back and, and make Albania into a specific project outside of understanding who my family is and where they are and, and have they been able to communicate with us over the years? Because you told me a story last year in Albania that was fascinating about seeing your pictures in, in the house in Albania, which is just astounding to think about that, that they were receiving communications. Well, we never stopped sending cards and letters and pictures and news in from Boston, again, where I had grown up. And for 50 years, cards, letters, pictures, news was sent in, but we never received anything. And then in 1993, when I showed up at my cousin's door, and they, they, knew, we were, they knew I was coming, and they led me into the house, and the pictures were framed and on the wall. The letters were framed and on the wall. It was like this God. alternate universe where we thought nobody was hearing us, and they were trying to, but they couldn't communicate back to us. So they 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 made a shrine on the wall to the family that had that couldn't get in. That yeah. was that had, had fifty years prior had been forced to leave. So that was really very very you know moving, and and it really solidified my connection. But I think I started to. Th- you know, I was working in the States and doing a lot of um, newspaper work. Then I was being hired by a lot of NGO. Because I had come from the healthcare world when I did the C Word, the first yep. cancer book, <clears throat> yep. a lot of my paid work then was around healthcare because I was really interested in health and disease. And okay. so I did a lot of work for um, NGOs, hospitals, all kinds of people, just loads of work. At the same time, I was doing newspaper work, but I was over the years getting a little bit antsy. I will say I did a second follow-up book to The C Word with a co-author, Heidi Adams, Um, and we did a book on cancer survivors. So we just, we drove all over the country. Again, very straight, very documentary, portraits and stories that came out in 97. Uh, And that was called, um, oh my God, I'm going to actually forget the name (laughs) of the book. Uh, That was called Here and Now. Well, you've done so many books. You've been hogging the publishing (laughs) lanes for years. So yeah, I I think I lost. Here and now, here and now. I lost one of my books in the (laughs) cracks in the sofa. There's so many. Here and now, and that was with Avalon, and they were great. But but around that time, I started to feel like I love the documentary world. I love telling stories, but I want to. I don't want to just capture what's unfolding. I want to be a part of what's unfolding. I want to have a little more control. That's where, that's something I want to talk about. Because to go from a newspaper photographer to where you are now is a jump. And I don't know if people understand how big of a jump that is, but my, my guess based on looking sort of back at your career, that it was an incremental jump because, because the conceptual of the fine art world is such a different playground compared to the newspaper world. At the same time, um, we have a little bit in, in common there where I was a newspaper photographer from 93 to 95, and you could see the changes coming. It was like a storm front on the horizon where you looked around and said, this business is not going to be this business as we know it for, in a very short time. So we most of, unless you just dug in and said, I'm going to stay here forever and be in the newspaper world, everyone departed to uh, w- varying locales, styles, genres. Some people got out of the industry. Uh, your the NG, was the NGO work a bridge? Was it the portraiture that was a bridge, or was there some other kind of work that made you like? What was the first project that you deviated from the classic reportage into something new? It was magazine work. So I really got my. So what what I did and what one did at the time was I I still love doing magazine. Excuse me, newspaper work and and journalistic stories like Mm -hmm. people and their stories are were and still are of great importance to me and are still kind of the backbone of everything I do even if it's visually very different so I got on planes very regularly and brought my portfolio to New York and hounded every magazine photographer and got a ton of work for about 15 years so I transitioned from being a portrait photographer for newspapers to being a portrait photographer for Edi- magazines, magazines, for editorial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I worked really for everyone, from The New Yorker to T Magazine to The New York Times Magazine, Time, um, you name it, yeah. everybody who's come and gone since then. But I have to say my most important connection um, came from, again, getting on an airplane, and Dan, you and I have this in common because we were both there, flying to the south of France to an photojournalistic slash editorial conference in Perpignan, where we went many years. Mm -hmm. We funded ourselves. We got our work together. We arranged travel. We got on planes. 
and we showed our work to magazine editors and, and book editors and yeah. people who were in the photo world. And so that's a commitment. So I was really, you know, committed to making sure my work was seen by editors, and, and that's how a lot of work came to me. Yeah. From that, from one of those years, a really critically important um, relationship was formed. I had made a project on my own. One of the healthcare jobs I got every year was shooting portraits for Oakland Children's Hospital. Okay. So every year they would say, Elena, we need an annual report. Would you come do this? Yes, I will. So I loved doing that. And during that time, I met a doctor who was an incredible man. He worked for on kids' faces who had like Cruzone syndrome, syndromes where the children's faces were severely disfigured. Okay. And he was this very, very open doctor, and he, he told me everything that he was doing, and he also told me that he made all the hardware. Not only did he rearrange, for lack of a better word, the kids' faces, he, he fabricated all the, to- all the hardware for their faces in his garage at home. Wow. So this was really interesting to me. And I said, can I start following you? He said, yes, you can. So it's not that common you get a doctor who's the head of a big department at a major hospital to say, yes, you can. But I happened to hit this guy who was really open-minded and really wonderful. And for about two years, I followed him. And just like from the C word, I got to know his kids. I got to know their families. They let me into the surgery room. I did everything with them. I got to know his family. And I brought that work to Perpignan. And I happened to wedge my way into a meeting with the, and I mean really wedge, like leap, leap yeah. you know, shrubs and knock people down. And the last opening of the day, for the, I got an appointment with the um, editor-in-chief of the French, Marie Claire. And I showed her this story. I did not know that she had a whole foundation for kids who had been disfigured or, or Um, had medical problems, and she said, I love this story. I'm sending somebody to San Francisco, where I lived at the time. You're going to do a piece on this same doctor for us. God, what an ironic coincidence that that, of all things, that that, that's their connection. I mean, that's that's unbelievable that that happened that way. Unbelievable. Really, it was the last minute I begged, can you please just look at this work? And I didn't know her. I just knew that she was French Marie Claire. I wanted to work for them. She said, I love this. I'm sending somebody. And she did. And she sent a writer named Elizabeth Alexander, and I ended up working with Elizabeth for the next decade, two to three times a year. I was the only photographer she used in the States, and we did an incredible array of stories for Marie Claire. And it was really, I'd say, the most important working relationship of my life. Wow. She's still a dear friend, and she was my segue also into the fine art world. Okay, so I want to I want to back up here just for a second, and I want to give the audience a little description here because you went over it rather quickly, and it's very important, and it's probably not something that a lot of people know about, which is at the it's in September every year. Visa, okay, so in the south of France, in a town called Perpignan, there is a festival called Visa pour l'image, and it's still running, as far as I know, and it's a festival that is that centric to photojournalism, documentary photography, etc. And originally, it was based out of a place called Hotel Palms. And that was, uh, I went the first time for Kodak, actually, when I worked for Kodak back in the late 90s. And Kodak France was there, and I sort of worked in tandem with them. It was a boondoggle. I convinced Kodak US to send me, and they oddly enough did. But the great thing about Perpignan is all the major players in the photojournalism slash documentary world and even NGO world industry were there. And so you had agencies from Magnum and Vu and Rafo and all the all the photo agencies and all the photographers were there and photo editors and art buyers and the entire industry was there. And as a photographer, you could go and uh, based on your tenacity and your connections and a variety of other factors, you could show your work into what Elaine is talking about. Put your work in front of people who were decision makers in the industry, yep. who had the budgets, the people who are in control, and they could really make or break a career. And I'm sure the same thing is still happening to these days. I was never very good at it. I went a few times and had a little bit of success. But the funny part I remember about you in particular at Visa and there may or may not be a photograph within 20 feet of us right now that is you, my wife, and I all at Perpignan, which we looked at a couple of days ago and got a good laugh out of, was I think you were the person who said to me at the beginning of Perpignan, by the way, if we're having a conversation and I 
Yes. And I leave in the middle. If you're in the middle of a sentence and I just run away from you, just know that it's because I am after someone. To I'm get chasing an editor. Yes, exactly. Yes. And uh, yeah, that happened. So uh, and that it, happened. And clearly it paid off. So the, that one meeting not only gives you the, the next decade of your life in terms of editorial assignments, and that was probably the heyday, the last heyday. heyday of editorial photography. Well, in fact, when I started working with them, which was probably Dr. Chin was the first story, I think I had 10 pages, 10 pages. Oh my God. And she was with me for two weeks in San Francisco. And then by the end of the, of the deck of the 10 or 12 years we worked together, we were down to two page, a spread. Yeah. You know, the magazine industry had changed so much. The budgets were slashed. We had to watch every penny everywhere we went. Yes, so it radically changed. But during that time, I made some phenomenal work and had access to incredible stories. And they were all published with, you know, great fanfare in Marie Claire. But not only that, you know, when you start working in editorial, you, you take a picture, it gets published. You promote that picture. You would do it today on Instagram or Facebook or wherever right. you would do it, an email blast. But then you had the actual physical magazine object to show. So I would do promotions all the time, or I would put them into the images into my portfolio, go back to New York, go to Paris, go to London, visit photo editors and say, this is what I've done. They'd say, great, we have an assignment coming up. Can you shoot, um, you know... You name it. I sh Rolling Stone, can you please shoot Mark Zuckerberg in the early days? We don't even know who this guy is. Can you just go shoot him? Yeah, I did. So I, can you wow. shoot Reed Hastings at, at this thing called Netflix? Yeah, I can. No problem. You know, I was in the Bay Area for many, many years, yeah. right at the turn of the first huge dot-com yeah. explosion. And I really shot a lot of the head people, you know, um, Jack Dorsey for Twitter, ev everybody. Wow. So, um, right place, right time. Yeah. Right place, right but, time. But also to your point, and it's, it needs to be emphasized that when you make a connection like that, it's at a place like Marie Claire, which is, a, which has, which is a publication of relevance. So when you can, when you call someone and say, I'm, I'm working for Marie Claire, doors open, people are curious, they know what that represents. And that, that to me was the power of editorial. And yes. to your point, it, it immediately goes global, yes. the work that you're putting out there. To have a 15-year a run is, is about all you could ask for, for that. But you said something a minute ago that's intriguing to me, which was, even though this was an editorial publication, that connection was what gave you the first step towards the fine art world. Yes. And, and was that based on subject matter that you were photographing, or was it the connections that your contact at Marie Claire was able to provide? Well, uh, it was both. So and, and Wait, before you answer, sure. I'm interrupting, I know. At that point in time, you're not in the fine art space yet. Correct. What was your vision of what it meant to be in the fine art world? I was the most committed editorial photographer you could find. That was my, I absolutely loved and still love shooting editorially. I love assignments. I loved the people I got to meet and the places I got to go really, truly in my heart. Uh, that was an enormously um, significant time in my life. So I was a straight editorial shooter. Mm -hmm. I shot people. I was really committed, and I really worked a lot. And I was always trying new films, pushing the craft, doing things that weren't necessarily normal. I was trying very hard and to some degree succeeded in just making a picture that was mine, that didn't look like everybody else's. Because in this world, you can't look like everybody else's picture. You have to carve out your own signature, your own style. And you know, that kind of started, even though the trajectory of the work that I've done has changed, I think there's a maybe a particular style that could, could, could be the through line. You know, now I say the through line is the kind of commitment to, um, you know, materiality, things that are tactile, things that are material, or also a story. You know, I'm still very, very committed to the story, even if my work... Um, looks visually quite different. different. Mm -hmm. The story is always the basis of whatever I'm trying to do. And it's always in series. So did I answer your question or did I jump ahead? No, I, well, the question was basically when you, when you, was there an, uh, an actual Oh yes. Acknowledgement of the idea in your head. Did you, did you get up one day as a photographer and say, look, I've been, a, I'm super committed to editorial. That's who I am. This is the kind of photography that I do. But you said something important there, which was you've, you've always figured out a way to make a, your version of a photograph. 
did you say to yourself, I think I want to move into fine art? And if you did, what was your vision of fine art then? What did that mean to become a fine art photographer? So I didn't. That's not how it happened, actually. So how it happened, the first, the first series that became a fine art series was on the back of editorial. And I often used editorial assignments as like jumping points mm -hmm. for personal, you know, for personal projects that weren't associated with a publication that I could just kind of take and run with. So Magazine World gave me a really rich environment from which to kind of mine stories. Sure. And you know how to do that because you're just naturally inclined in a certain direction. It takes an enormous amount of work, time, energy, money, commitment to see a project through from beginning to end. So I've always let my instinct, you know, as a photographer, as an artist, the only thing you really can rely on is your instinct. And so if your instinct says, follow that, follow that, I did. And so you know, over the last 20 years, that's what I still follow. What's my instinct tell me? Because I certainly know how much, how much energy this is going to take to see something through. Yeah. So how it happened was the same writer, Elizabeth, uh, uh, from Marie Claire, found a photograph in a French newspaper in 1999 of a headless silicone uh, doll, but full-sized, you know, a five-foot-eight doll with very large breasts, very large buttocks, kind of an, a, a, a caricature, almost, caricature almost of a woman, yep. headless, hanging from a hook in a factory. And she sent the picture to me in the mail and said... <laughs> in the actual in mail. In the actual mail <laughs> and said, if you can find somebody who lives with this doll or these dolls, it was a doll factory, we could do a piece for Marie Claire. So I, again, lived in San Francisco at the time. And I pretty much walked the streets for six months, asking in every sex shop, um, leather parlor, strip club, does anybody know anybody who lives with a sex doll? Really, yeah. for six months. Finally, uh, one morning I walked into a very famous strip club that's now gone, sadly, called The Lusty Lady. And the guy, I asked him my question, and the guy at the front, uh, at the, the bouncer, yeah. said, actually, I just read an article about these dolls. And if you go to this tattoo parlor on Haight Street, you find this publication they have on the wall. In there is a story. And the guy wrote a first person story. And I remember there was a URL. Wow. So I went and got the book. Detective work. Detective work. I, I found the URL and I wrote. And I really will never forget when that email came back. And he said, yeah, this is me. You can't photograph me, but I can help you. And so that was the entree into the whole series that became Still Lovers, yeah. which was my first monograph. Excuse me. It was my first fine art monograph. I had done the two cancer books before that. And it was the first time I was represented by a fine art gallery. So that, but I, that was yeah. my transition, but I never assumed it would be. I thought it was just a really successful story because Elizabeth came from Paris. We went to Missouri to photograph the first family. And an important... Um, kind of element of that series is, you know, on the plane, I'm thinking, how am I going to photograph a guy having sex with a doll for a, a, ma a major publication? Like, yeah. is, am I going to be able to do that? And then we got there, we met them, husband and wife and family. And they said, oh, we don't actually have sex with the dolls. They're just part of our family. And that's when something in my head said, oh, this is so much more interesting than I ever thought it would be. And I stayed in the world for five years. So the, we, Elizabeth and I spent one weekend with them shooting everything they wanted to shoot. We set it up. We had the dolls come out. They had not one doll. They had three. They had two kids. They were husband and wife. It was fa absolutely fascinating and such a world I had never encountered. And then I thought, this is so fascinating. I have to stay. So she went off back to Paris. We continued doing other stories throughout the years, but I stayed with it myself for about five years. So that means that I packed my bags. I found the people. Mm -hmm. I, I, I uh, packed my lights in an entire two and a quarter kit, uh, paid for airplane tickets, paid yep. for rental car tickets, and went all over the United States, the south of France, and the UK photographing men who lived with dolls. Not as their, not only as their sexual companions, but as their domestic companions, men who were in love with their dolls. So that is a 
fascinating story from clipping in the newspaper to potential editorial assignment of this doll. It was. It, it came out as an editorial assignment shortly after we shot it. And then I used detective work sort of jokingly, but it's true. That's that's the basis of how these projects come about is you put your, I always tell people about doing research on a project that it's it's not, it shouldn't be drudgery. It's how you understand the boundaries and foundation of what a project is. It's how you make your connections. You do that. And I'm also glad you said that once, uh, you know, you guys, went, she went back to Paris and you, you continued on with your career, but this became almost a secondary life for you. And that's what these projects require. Yes. Is the, 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 not only the, the research of trying to pull them off, but then the physicality of actually going and paying for these things yourself. I have a, a sort of a, a fringe question here, but it's something that I've run into many times over the years, and I'm curious if it ever happened to you. When when you were doing the doll story, and and just to to recap, these were these real dolls. Is that the was that is there a specific style of doll or brand of doll? Yeah, when I first so the factory she saw in the first picture was the real doll factory. Okay, and so of course over the course of years and the different men I met, some of them at the time had different dolls. Okay, the 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 primary doll was the real doll because okay. most of the men had the real doll. There are variations, but now mostly they're the real doll, and I have. Want, just want to say, I wasn't at the time of shooting interested at all in the factory world. I was really only interested in the human connection between man and doll, or woman and doll, because there were also women and dolls. And so when you're working on that project now, the editorial assignment is over. One of the challenges that I've, I've had is I prefer to work on projects by myself. And one of the hard parts for civilians, I guess you could say, to get their head around at times is the fact that you are doing this as a personal project. And that can work in your favor or it can hold you back. For me, example, working on the border, I get pulled over by the border patrol and they say, why are you here? I'm working on a project. Well, who's paying you? No one's paying me. I'm paying for it myself. Uh, odds are I'm going to lose money on this project. And it doesn't compute. And they go, nobody would come here and waste their money and to do a project like this. You can't be here. Take off. And so how was it approaching people? Because it is kind of a sensitive topic. And you'd have people that may say, oh, this is going to make me look bad if, I'm, if people yeah. find out I'm living with a doll. Was that an issue of saying, this is a personal project, I'm doing this? Or was that helpful? To yeah, well, I could only get into their homes because the first, fa excuse me, the first uh, family we went to see liked us very much. I mean, we totally understood. Somehow it, uh, it made sense to me. I don't know why. But somehow this, this world that people were living in made per it I can't say it made sense to me but I I in no way judged them I yeah. thought I just want to know how you live so the experience was so good that they and again Elizabeth was with me the first time we got in for Marie Claire and then I'm the one who said I want to carry on she said go ahead it's all yours so the first couple said we know who can help you and so we're going to go into our kind of underground. You know, at the time, let's not forget, the Real Doll Company didn't even have a, a, a PR. You couldn't get in touch with anybody. It was totally silent. It was in the closet. Nobody could know. Nobody wanted anybody to know. There was no, there was no publicity, right. publicist sure. promoting as there is today. So it was really just because I had had such a good experience with the first family that they said, we think we know who you can go see, and we okay. will write to him. There's an underground channel in The Real Doll. It's a forum that everybody who owns a doll is is on the forum. Okay. So I went then next to Michigan, to Detroit, had a great experience with the guy there. He said, I think I know who can help you. He sent me to England. He said, I think I know who can, who can help you. He sent me to uh, the south of France. That guy said, I think I know who can help you. And that's how it worked. So once you were in and you had the trust, yes. because they meet you and they know you're not there to exploit them, you're Correct. actually doing this project. So the project that you're talking about ended up in the book Still Lovers. Yes. And this is a, a, an incredible book. And that's the first book of yours that I saw. I didn't see the cancer books before. That was yeah. my first introduction to your photography was that book. And on the surface, you, 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 hear the you see the title of the book, you know what the book is about, you think you know what it's about, and then you open it up. And the, the part that really, to me, was incredible were the families with these dolls. And you realize, to your point, this is, I don't know this story at all. I had preconceived what this is about, and that's, right. that's the beauty of that project that is so fantastic. And uh, when did that book come out? It came out in 2005. 
Wow, that's been a it's it's a, it's amazing. I have it right over here. I'm actually going to review that on my oh, good. YouTube channel because you know now I'm a YouTube darling. Yes, so, I know you uh, are. I know you're a superstar. Yeah, that that book is on my is on my list. I mean, I think the thing with that book is I would say it's in that series. It's probably it's it's will always be not only because it was the first, but it was a truly significant project. And you know, it. It, it was the basis for the film Lars and the Real Girl, which came out in 2007. Okay. And it, I just followed my instinct. I just found them interesting and stuck with it. I knew it would be an interesting project. And then last year, you know, the Prada Foundation in Milan did an entire show, a uh, two-person show, Still Lovers, with a, another woman, Jamie Diamond, who did a book on um, people who ha- kind of live with uh, fake babies. So it, it, it was done 20 years ago. Yeah. But it... It will forever have a life as we, move into, yeah. as we move into artificial intelligence and replacement human beings and what it means for someone to love an inanimate object, which is becoming much more common than yeah, sure. it was before. So it, it kind of is timeless, and I didn't know that, but it just has become that. So although it's 20 years ago, you know, the work has never, ever stopped being shown or written about really in 20 years. It'll show again in Montreal this summer. And... I want to also reemphasize to the people listening, that was five years of your personal time Correct. and energy and money to put that together. Correct. And I paid for it by doing taking editorial assignments. So that often uh, gets overlooked. The last question I want to ask you about this before we move on to Albania yep. is, how did you know when you were done? I knew I was done because I wasn't interested in the stories anymore. I'd kind of heard them all. Okay. And I really, I just, I just really in my heart knew that I didn't want to be... In the world, I, I wanted to leave the world for a while. And the last question on this, I lied. I have one more question <laughs> no about it. You mentioned that, so this was this the first body of your work that ended up in a gallery? Yes, and I can tell you how that happened. And was it the first body that ended up in a museum? Yes. And so that must have cracked the door to the fine art world. Yes. In a way that was obvious, apparent, glaring. This, these are connections I've not had. These are spaces I've not had. That, to me, is a, is a significant jump from the editorial world to the fine art world. And fine art is a world that gets a word and a description that gets thrown around all the time. And I find it a bit maddening because uh, landscape photographer, online, saturation slider at plus 30, I'm a fine art photographer. And I guess everybody has a, def- a different definition. I hold that, that, term, that term and that community as basically sacred. There's a monumental jump for me from editorial to fine art. And Mm -hmm. fine art comes with collectors, galleries, Mm -hmm. curators, Mm -hmm. museums, etc. It's a different lifestyle. It's a different community. Mm -hmm. And so tell us how the first gallery came about. So I had done Still Lovers and I had a very dear friend in New York. Again, I spent a ton of time in New York going, meeting editors and, and book people and, you know, really just pursuing my, my, my craft there, even though I lived in San Francisco at the time. So uh, a dear friend was a collector, and he said, you know, I absolutely love this work, and this should be a, a, a body of work in a gallery. I said, I don't know how to do that. This isn't my world. And he said, why don't you make two for me? We'll put them up in my house. Everybody in the museum world comes through my house, in the gallery world also, and they'll see them. So we did. And Edwin Hauck of the Edwin Hauck Gallery in mm-hmm. New York came through and said, whose work is that? I really like it. And they took me on, and we did several shows together. Uh, it was a solo show at Perry Photo in 2006, solo show in New York. Um, you know, it just kept building. So that was the first entree, and lots of museums and private, um, not lots, several museums and many private collectors acquired the work. That's pretty unbelievable. That is uh, your entryway into the gallery world yeah. with how Gallery. That is, uh, yeah. yeah, that's scary. It was scary, yeah. But also, you know, I want to—I can't stress enough the importance of relationships. Sure. I mean, really, in any career at all, it's kind of who you know and, and how you manage your relationships. And that, for me, I've to always place them really as paramount importance, and it can pay off. I don't do it with the intention of they can help me. They're, he was my tr- friend. He still is my friend. And he just said, I, I think this is, he saw beyond what I could see because I thought, I'm an editorial photographer. Yeah. I, don't do, yeah. I don't do gallery work. And he said, oh, no, this can go in the gallery. He's a conduit, a translator, yeah. someone that knew that you were talking about two different bodies of people, two different groups of people, industries, and said, I can be the link across. Exactly. And then at the opening, at the Hauk opening of, in 2006, 
um, I was approached by, uh, it was a publishing company that's no longer around called Channel Photographics, and they said, we'd like to talk to you about doing a book. And then the book came out after. I, I had also done a show in San Francisco, I want to give credit where it's due, to uh, a gallery I'm still with, Modernism. He, he was actually the very first in 2004. He saw the dolls. A friend brought them to him, and he said, I really want to do this show. So he, now I'm remembering, in 2004, he did a show with me, and um, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember who was in the show with me now, David Leventhal and Hans Belmer. So people I really admire, and that was actually the first. So, you know, people were really interested in this, and they saw far beyond what I could see of the kind of global impact. I just thought yeah. it was a fascinating um, world to enter. Yeah, I mean, I think you're combining two things. You're combining the fact that you have the ability to make unique work and tell a unique story. And that that is not something to take lightly. That is not something that happens overnight. You spent 20 some odd years of your life prior to doing this. And basically, uh, the newspaper world is a training ground. Editorial is a yeah. training ground. Yeah. And now you're moving forward. Plus, you made the conduit and the connections to get you into that world, which right. is those two things. There are plenty of photographers walking the earth that never get they never succeeded either one of those um and so that's it's a pretty grand accomplishment to pull that off which is we i could talk about still lovers all day i think that's um it's one of my favorite photo books and that to me is just the the, the essence of what a great reportage photo essay is supposed to be about yeah it was and, reportage and to see the fruits of that end up in gallery museum and publication and then to continue 20 years later yes. tells you the the power of what that project is and it also told me you know like you at the time i don't now but at the time i thought oh that's another world the fine art world but reportage had quite a place in the fine art world and it still does yeah so fine art encompasses it's a really big umbrella that encompasses a lot of different work certainly not just one style and different galleries represent different kinds of photography so um you know reportage fit right in in the beginning yeah, and that was the that was the transition segue. There's a what's interesting. There's a, a lot of people have written about reality based photography mm -hmm. in the fine art world, mm -hmm. and I find that a fascinating fascinating topic. I sort of uh, and I when I went to photojournalism school, had this very classic education, wanted to be a reportage photographer, documentary photographer, and I always looked down on the fine art world. Not mm. not now, but mm -hmm. for the first whatever fifteen years of my career, because I looked at the fine art world, I had no comprehension or understanding of conceptual work, and I looked and thought, oh, these stories, the photographs aren't good. I'm not interested in the concept, and I just dismissed the whole thing. You know, I wanted to be the Magnum photographer. I right. wanted to do black and white photo essays, and then as I got older and I got more. Uh, less less intrigued with being a full-time photographer, but more in love with photography in general, yeah. all of a sudden I was exposed to the real conceptual art photography. My, my, you know, the photographers I looked at and were interested in changed. Now I think fine art to me is one of the only remaining sort of free bastions of photography left. It could, it could be reportage. It could be portrait series. It could be anything. And yeah. that's the beauty of the fine art world. But it still is a mystery to me. <laughs> I, I'm completely resentful of you now because you made <laughs> all of these jumps. And with that, we will move on to uh, Albania because there's a lot to talk about here. Sure. We, we heard about your history and personal connection with the country itself and your family being there. Last year, my wife and I ventured to Albania to take your workshop. Oh, yes, you did. And uh, I think that came about because we had a conversation, and Albania is obviously in transition, and it's moving into a, I guess, a modern democracy, if you will, of sorts. It is a modern, it's a, a corrupt modern democracy. And mm -hmm. that's, uh, that was the of sorts, <laughs> yes, you know, the, yes. the, the corruption part. Uh, and you were like, hey, if you want to see Albania, now's a great time. Right. Because who knows what five years is going to be. Right. And based on geographic location. Now, the funny part about when I, we decided to go was that I had to tell Blurb, you know, I'm, I'm going, I'm taking vacation, I'm going. Uh, and Blurb's always cool about that stuff and no problem. Uh, but uh, other people around the world, especially here in the States, would say, oh, you're going to Albania. And th this, the responses I got were, where in South America is Albania? <laughs> I got, why are, why do you want to go to Russia? And that to me and it was enough for me to want to go right there. Yes. Was just people had absolutely no concept whatsoever, not even of what's happening there or what happened in the 50 year isolation, but even where it's geographically located. Right. So you have been going in and out of there now since 90, was it three, four, five? For 30 years. 30 yeah. years. And is there an overarching, before we get to the workshops that you're teaching, is there an overarching project, a specific project that's encompassed the 30 years, or are you working on something new right now in relation to the country? 
So um, I think for the first, you know, dozen trips, I was, I really just did a lot of reportage, just walk, because I was trying to get to know the place myself, and I didn't have a clear understanding yet of a specific project. So it was really just sort of street shooting. Mm -hmm. And not much more than that. So very extensive, but just casual. And then in 2016, I took a really long trip there, about six weeks, and I kind of walked the whole country. And I'll just jump back for a minute. So my series, my fine artwork now is is more landscape-driven. Mm -hmm. So it is, it, it is and it isn't. It, I've jumped to landscape in about 2013. Um, I'll just quickly say that because it's significant to what you just asked me. So I started a project... Um, Continuing with my portrait work, I, I started, I was spending time in the Midwest, and I started photographing people who were um, quarry jumpers, so jumping off huge rocks into natural quarries in Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky. And I spent many months shooting people flying through the air in really beautiful poses. And then I thought, interesting, uh, this, isn't, this isn't actually what's interesting to me, but the spaces themselves, the landscape itself is really interesting to me. So I spent about two years walking the landscape of Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky <laughs> every month, um, finding, locating active and abandoned rock quarries. I didn't want to do that work straight, so I started layering a particular kind of layering technique that I thought highlighted the history of the quarry world, the rock, time, time passing, time spent, um, a whole host of issues that fit into this rock quarry series called Empire Falling. So I was heavily invested in walking landscape. So in 2016, when I went to um, back to Albania for a l long period of time, I walked the country, particularly in the north, and I started shooting a lot of um, landscape. Mm -hmm. And because I have, I don't really want to shoot straight landscape anymore. It does, it does compel me, but in my own trajectory over the last, say, 10 years, I've done work that's more um, manipulated. So I started working, because of it was Albania, I started working in a new way that I hadn't done before. It wasn't digitally collaged. The work uh, was, I, I, I kind of wanted to put my hands on it. The way I've described it before was this was a place I could never get my hands on. It was mm -hmm. always far away and distant, and we couldn't get in. And I wanted to leave the digital world. I wanted to get off my computer and start doing work that was more tactile, directly onto the prints. So through a very kind of elaborate process, I started photographing the landscape, but then um, applying handwork. So the handwork could be paint, um, crayon, brushwork, um, uh, precious metals. So a lot of it has gold and silver and copper and uh, imbe both embedded digitally and also placed on the top of the final prints. And I print them very monumental. So they're about 10 feet. And so... I really wanted to show the landscape, but my hand on the landscape. Mm -hmm. So the Albanian pictures uh, from the transmutation series are all manipulated, but they're all rooted in the real, which is me walking the landscape. landscape. And there's always that rooted in the real, even if the work has been manipulated to some degree um, later on. So that is a through line. I The tapestries came from that layering process that I had done in Empire Falling and a 2015 series called Sublime the Los Angeles River, where I'm layering. So I'm trying to create this very deep perspective for the viewer who's looking at the picture. I'm trying to give them a sense of time and place and history and experience. And it, they're, they're, they're woven pictures, but they're digitally woven. So the next step for me that made sense was actually weaving the pictures. So they were woven. Um, I collaged some of the work. There was the straight photograph that then handwork was applied. They were turned into digital files. And then those digital files were, uh, I worked with a collaborator, an amazing studio called Magnolia in the Berkeley, in Berkeley. And they produced the tapestries in Belgium. So they work with the digital photographic file, which produces a digital weave file, which produces a digital weave. So the tapestry was kind of a natural progression from all the layered, um, collaged photographs I had done earlier. So when you start something like that, one thing we haven't really talked about because you've had such amazing success is failure. And so when you start something like the, the tapestries, the weaving, working with, with metals, 
how much experimentation is there and how many times did you say, why am I doing this? Or I'm never going to get this right. Or how much, how much is failure a part of the process before you land on the, because I went to the gallery in Denver and saw, saw some mm, of the tapestries yes. and you're like, these are, I haven't really seen anything quite like that. And so what's that, what's that process? What's the jump? How long does that take to get your system in place? Oh, the tapestry was different because Magnolia kind of, we worked with the files together and then they had them produced. But okay. to take a step back and is my doing the handwork, you know, I didn't feel I had any place at all doing that handwork. Like I'm a photographer. I work, I'm a visual artist. I work with the camera. I don't apply glitter to a piece of film and then <laughs> photograph it. I don't work with 23 karat gold, which I do now on the pictures or beautiful, you know, other metals, palladium or moon gold, or I felt like I had absolutely no place doing that. Like I needed permission, but I love the materials and I, I took to them quite naturally. And I just think from the beginning of starting at the Chronicle to moving through magazine work, to moving into the editorial, excuse me, the fine art world and film, I, I'm always looking for the next thing. What is it? What's the next progression? What's going to push me? What's going, I don't want to do the same thing my whole career. I'm now like seven seven or eight, you know, big series in, and I have to keep pushing myself. So I think that's the most important thing is just to continue to learn the craft and to take it a little further. It's scary for sure, because I think, I, I don't do this work. I did Still Lovers. How can I do work that has all this handwork on it? But I, you know, you just transition over, over a period of time if it's natural to you. So you just said something very interesting, which was your progression from newspaper to editorial to fine art, et cetera, and, this, and then the working with the metals and moving, looking for something new. The very beginning of this interview, you mentioned something about being a mid-career artist. Yeah. Is that a positive thing? Is there a positive side to that, or is that a negative side? Mid -career... Oh, it's absolutely terrible. It, it's terrible? <laughs> absolutely no. terrible. How can it be terrible? It's, absolutely, it's the death knell. The mid -career, because yeah. mid-career novelist has sort of a negative con con you know, uh, connotation from time to time. You have, uh, I mean, in the writing world, it's, it's equally as vicious as the photography world. But I look at mid-career artists, and you said you just, you're seven or eight series, series in. Yeah. And to me, when I look at, let's say, a young photographer that goes and does a great project somewhere, and on the rare instances where they reach out to someone like me and ask for advice, I said there's people in the photo world that will look at that and say, so what? You did it one time go do it again and prove you can do it twice. Yeah. So seven or eight series in, five books, gallery representation, private collections, museums, mid-career to me means that you have your act together and you know what you're doing. So how could there be negative connotations to mid-career artists? Um, you know, I guess there isn't. It's kind of every, it's the way you look at it. First of all, it spans an in, indefinite period of time. So I guess suddenly you're old and then you're considered a, ma a mature artist. But, you know, the <laughs> fine art world certainly has labels for everybody. Um, so now I say I'm, I'm mid-career because it's true. But, um, you know, it's helpful in that I know, I know my way around the world, but it's still sometimes baffling how it happens. Yeah. Um, I know how to carry on relationships and to create new, new relationships. But, you know, there's always the obsession with the new, with the young um, trends. You know, your fight, it's the same in every career. Is it harder to be a photographer today than it was 20 years ago? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Was um, a, I mean, I knew the answer yes. to that, but I was, you know, I had the audience in mind here throwing yes, them a bone. Yes, of course. Yes, They're I'm sick sorry. of hearing me say that? Yeah, no, yeah. I'll say it. Yeah, sorry, audience. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it is hard, but, you know, if you do good work, it shines through no matter what. If you know how to have relationships, it comes through. If you know how to um, see a project through from beginning to end and you know how to speak about it and write about it, I honestly cannot state that enough. You have to know how to speak about your work and write about your work and defend it. I can't believe you said that because I tell people that all the time. It's crucial. I tell people you have to be more than a photographer because if you're talking about shutter speeds and apertures, no one cares. You have to know how to talk about your work very politely, concisely, and if yes. you can throw a little humor in, that's great. Yes. And you have to do your research and know where you're, yes. where the context of where you fit in. Yes. So it's speaking of, of change, context, and where fitting in, you have, and looking for the next thing that's mm -hmm. coming, is mm -hmm. you've started actually doing, you've taught on and off for, for years, but yes. you're actually doing workshops now yeah. in Albania, which I mentioned before that I, we went last year. And then last year during the workshop, um, I was because I'm, you know, blurb is in my blood now after 11 years. It's like uh, I can't get it out. And so I was sort of building a magazine in real time as we went along, which was fun for me because I hadn't been in the field with, with intention to make pictures in a long time. So 
Albania to me was like a vacation. It was a relief valve of putting away the computer for a while and just looking around at a place I'd never been. So I'm building this, and then at night during the workshop, you and I would sit, and you would sit with the other students as well, and we would do projections and, and look at people's work and sort of discuss what has happened. But uh, you were helping me with the magazine, and so I was laying this out in real time, and we were editing and dra dragging and dropping yeah. slides. And from that came this idea that we would do these workshops together. Yeah. So explain a little bit about how the workshops came to be and what you've got planned for 2021, yeah. if, if all goes well with COVID and yes. you know, the rest of the world. Yes, we're hoping for September, two trips in September. So, um, you know, I again, I've been traveling there for 30 years. I have incredible, I know the country from top to bottom, have great contacts. The country has grown. It's vibrant. It's remote. It's absolutely beautiful. Three seas, uh, an incredible Alps range, um, three UNESCO World Heritage Sites. It's a really beautiful place. So I've put together a fun and interesting trip with you, which I'm really excited about. And mid-September, we'll take the first trip, uh, again, if all goes well. And for about, uh, I believe it's uh, nine days, we will travel to the north. So it's about five uh, cities, including some small cities, and we'll travel up into the beautiful mountain range where we hike, take pictures, have critique, eat really good food, make books. You and I will... will People will be shooting. We'll have group critiques, private critiques. You'll be helping put uh, books together for yep. people, magazines. Um, lots of one-on-one -on -one time. These are very small, cur highly curated, highly custom trips. Yeah. Um, and I'm showing people a country that they don't know and that I know really well. Um, and then the second trip, which will be the last week of September, we will go to the south, which is kind of the more... Uh, not cultural center, but it's a big food center. We'll, we'll, we'll do points south. So all of that is on the website, which is actually called Wide Angle Photo Tours. And uh, maybe, Dan, you can post it. Yeah, I'll include the link on the, uh, in the interview. And they're really fun trips, and you learn a lot, and you get a lot of private time. You have me and Dan, and um, yeah, well, I you'll hope get they sick go of well. us. Yeah, we yeah, so we're much. sickening. Yeah, Albania to me was uh, obviously all the every country is unique, and for me it was interesting um, to just not. I didn't have any sort of agenda. I just went into it wide open and looked around. And uh, once you're there once, you all you can think about is going back. So yeah. it's been Amy and I have been talking about it pretty much on a weekly basis since we left, hoping that. Uh, that that uh, everything works out with, you know, the pesky little COVID and yeah. vaccines and those those sort of things. Okay, speaking of COVID, and this is what we're going to end on. Yep. So when March 9th was the day that Amy and I and the folks here in New Mexico and, and various other parts of the world, obviously, March 9th was the day that I, I can look back on and say that was the day that I knew the our life as we knew it was going to be uh, postponed for quite some time. And so... As a as a someone who's a creative, I'll, I'll throw myself in that category. You're you're faced with looking at a situation like this where all of our lives are upended and people are dying and it's incredibly serious and we all know people who've been affected, and you have choices. You can either shut down or you can look and say, my job as a creative and being a creative part of society is to produce work during this time, and you no surprise, have been very productive during during this time. So if you can talk a little bit about what you've done during COVID, but also what did what did COVID force you to do or force you to realize about being an artist? Uh, it forced me to stay in the studio, whereas often I go out to shoot and I'm looking for things outside. So uh, it forced me to really start putting together what I had in the studio and kind of making it up in whatever way I could make it up. So that means that um, I'd say March... 16th or 17th, when Los Angeles, where I now live, was really going into shutdown mode, I thought, I want to go down and see what's happening because uh, I want to go down and see what's happening in the flower mart, downtown LA, what is happening, what's still open, what's closed. This was, in fact, the last day that all businesses were, were allowed to be open. Okay. So I went to the Los Angeles flower mart, and every single door was shut, closed for who knows how long except one, and they were taking massive bunches of flowers, throwing them on the street, getting ready to dump them because they were going, yeah. you know, who knows what was going to happen. So I picked up a lot of the flowers that were kind of rotting that they had. I picked them up um, from the trash around the corner. 
I went in and said, what do you have that's funereal? What do people use for funeral flowers? And I'll buy them. And I bought massive bunches of flowers from them. I went back to the studio and, and, and shot about 3,500, 4,000 pictures over the course of about nine, eight weeks, actually, of the, the life of the flowers. I was incredibly moved by the numbers of people who were dying, about the shift in tradition, people who were, could not celebrate, which is, uh, people use bouquets for that. They, yeah. they could not have funerals. People were alone. I was incredibly moved by the situation. And all I could do to keep myself sane was arrange and rearrange flowers all day long, literally from morning to night. And I felt really compelled to do it. And I watched them as they kind of went from, you know, alive to dead. And I, I made a series that I'm quite happy with that was really about the life of these flowers, which is in fact about so much more and a, a, a significant um, a visual of, of this moment in time. I think there's a couple of things that, that jump out and, and we'll end with this, which is your career like I think everyone's career, is a perpetual transition. Yeah. It's jumping from one thing to another. It's focusing on what you're working on, but that third eye is looking towards Always. the future about what's happening. And it's an evolution, but it's also a lot of work. It takes a hundred. This is not a hobby. It's your entire life. Yes, it it's is. It consumes you from the time that you were a 10-year-old girl with your dad. And so I think there's a lot of lessons to be taken from, from your career that I think uh, there's a lot of people out there that would are going to have their their minds blown by listening to how a photographer like yourself operates and how a career develops and and sustains itself over a, a 30 to I don't want to date you now 30 40 40 year time frame well I've had officially 20 years okay 20 years all right I was jumping the gun a yeah little you bit. were I, I'm just yeah. envisioning, I'm not that old I'm envisioning you know down the road when you know you're in Albanian politics and you know who knows what happens true there but, you go um, well that's that's fantastic I'm so glad you were able to take some time to sit down and uh and talk to the, talk to us about uh your photography and your career thanks for having me i want to i want to just clarify 20 years in the fine art world 10 years before that in the newspaper See? editorial yes you were right See? you were right I sorry had, i had 10 year old girl yes in mind. yes, yes. Exactly. i figured you were selling you were selling illegal you know stock <laughs> images back then yes i was for yeah. sure so uh yeah that's a that is a, a legitimate career yes and uh there are not many of you roaming the earth and it's uh you're kind of like a little national national international treasure thank you dan and uh yeah i hope i hope anything i have to say is helpful um anybody can reach out to me i'm Absolutely. online and happy to answer any questions or yes, whatever i will post your uh, i'll post the link to your website and also post the wide angle photo tours link cool for anyone who's interested in, in joining on the uh, Albania voyage next year. Cool. And again, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's Your career is incredibly impressive, and I'm glad I was able to share it with some folks. Thank you.